I, I think I'm in an interesting position as a writer because it's quite rare that your third book becomes the breakout book. Mm-hmm. You know, we're quite used to kind of huge debuts, yeah. and that kind of comes with a whole different set of expectations because you have to do it again. Um, and I know a lot of people who are so fortunate to be in that position who have a lot of trouble with their next book just because they had this huge um, kind of explosion into the literary scene. me, I feel like I had built a career before I wrote Counterfeit. And I was honestly quite content with that career. You know, my first two books did fine. <laughs> they were, they got published, which was, I was ecstatic about. They found readers, which was another um, wonderful thing. I remember distinctly when I went on tour for my second book, Bury What We Cannot Take, which is the least read of those three books. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, if this is my life, every four or five years, I write a book and I put it out and somebody pays me to do it and somebody reads it, what a life that is. What a beautiful life that is. What a privilege. And so I kind of try to remember that. Hello, welcome to a brand new bestsellers. This is Phil Williams. And this is Natalie Jameson. Nice. And we're very excited about today's because uh, this we're is... We're always excited, right? <laughs> Yeah, genuine, but for different <laughs> reasons, I think. The reason yeah. I like this one is that this is a Natalie Jameson book, and you said, you've got You're to welcome. read this. And I'm like, right, okay. And I did, and I destroyed it in three days. It's it's, uh, And it that is one of the highest compliments I can give a book, because normally I'm quite a slow reader, and especially if I've got a lot of other stuff on. But this one, um, really, really good. Kirsten Chen, it's called Counterfeit, or as Natalie says it. Counterfeit? Now, well, I, well I'll say that in, in the intro, and you'll... Pick me up on it and uh, <laughs> make me question my own abilities to speak, which <laughs> happens quite often. Do I say counterfeit? Counter. Oh, anyway, this is going to be so boring now because you know what's going to come in a second. Anyway, <laughs> before we get to that, um, Go I on. also wanted to say again. Um, I've got something to tell you as well. You've have you okay? Yeah. I wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening, and if you're new to this podcast, just want to set out again briefly why we do it. It's because Phil and I both love reading. We hate any snobbery that sometimes exists in the book world. You know, if people question, why did you choose that book? Or why haven't you read these classics? You know, that you're somehow lesser if you haven't done so. And just want you to discover the joy of finding a book that fits in with your world and hopefully also finding new authors that you may not have thought of that you discover anew. Um, And that's kind of the fun of sharing these. So do tell your friends if you've enjoyed the conversations and you found something new to read, pass it on. Neil Tennant, Pet Shop Boy, just put it on Instagram, right? Yeah. And I think this is brilliant. Why does the Kindle app on the iPhone promote reading books as though it's some kind of sports activity that one does reluctantly? I've probably read every day since I was seven years old, but I can't get rid of this fatuous panel. Stop patronizing me, Neil. Kiss. Right. And the panel he's on about is the graphic you get. And I get it on my Apple. It's not just Kindle. Nine weeks in a row, three days in a row. And it kind of clocks how much you've read. I often, if I read on Apple Books, once I've done four or five pages, it goes reading goal achieved. And it sends me a big ping at the top of the screen. Do you get that? No, I don't. But then that's probably because I maybe don't have as much up to date versions. But maybe it is there on my Kindle, but I haven't noticed it. Um, you know, I just thought I was glad you flagged it. Yeah, no, me too. Like, that's an awful thing. I don't like that at all. That's the reading equivalent of me saying to you, oh, I benched 180 in the gym this morning. It shouldn't be about that, should it? Yeah, it should the sportification like, oh, was... of reading is yeah, yeah is silly because also for, for somebody like me, uh, because I'm stubborn, that would put me off because I'd be like, oh, fine then. I'm just going to break my own streak and I'm just going to stop reading. Oh, <laughs> Take see, that app. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which serves no purpose. It it makes it feel like, oh, I should be clocking up more books. And it's like, why is there constantly a finish line? Mm. The pleasure in reading is coming out of that rat race, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And I, yeah, I I find it quite stressful if it's a continuous thing because everybody has different things going on in their lives. So you can't punish someone or make them feel bad for like ending a streak of reading. If, for example, somebody in their family just got really ill or you know, they had a work crisis. It's like, exactly. don't don't put them in the same exactly. basket. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, don't exactly. do that. And I just wanted to mention it because it's a reading thing. I thought it would appeal to you. So to our guest author this week, Kirsten Chen, the book's called Counterfeit. And here is my learned colleague, Natalie Jameson, with a full and proper introduction. Mm-hmm. 
Today's guest has written three novels. Counterfeit is book number three, uh, came out in hardback in 2022. And we are chatting to Kirsten as the paperback version uh, gets launched around the world around about now. But it came to the attention of Reese Witherspoon last year as well. And the world truly noticed, as did Sony Pictures, who've optioned the rights to adapt this for television. Um, I'm not sure if I was ahead or behind Reese in terms of when I first read Counterfeit. Probably behind, I'm going to guess. <laughs> but I love this book so much. And I'm so thrilled that we've managed to get some time with Kirsten Chen. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yay. So do you want to do the initial setup of counterfeit? Because again, I should say counterfeit. Counterfeit. Do you not say counterfeit? No, because it reminds me of school fate. <laughs> really? I yeah. always Kirsten, say counterfeit. Kirsten, how do you say it? I'm American. Don't even listen to me. <laughs> However you want to do it. <laughs> I don't say counterfeit. I say no, counterfeit. I'm just teasing. You can say it how you want to say it. <laughs> yeah, there's probably loads of words right, like that, right? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> can you set up the plot for us of this book? Because, yeah, we don't want to spoil the ending at all. Um, but would love to hear how you describe it. Sure. So Counterfeit is the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag scheme into a global enterprise. Um, and for a period of time, they're not enormously successful, but like most schemes, um, they eventually, um, things start to flounder. And it's at that point that one of the members of the team disappears, leaving our protagonist, Ava Wong, to kind of pick up the pieces and deal with the consequences. Like all these schemes, it's really simple. I was blown away at how simple it was. I, I didn't know, until I read your book, I didn't know this was a thing. Did you know this was a thing, Natalie? The actual way they do it? No, so what they do is all. They buy a legit handbag so that there's a lost leader. That handbag is legit, right? And then um, they take that off and copy it, right? And then they sell that on eBay. So whoever buys that on eBay gets a genuine bargain, right? And then what they do is, with the receipt for the legit one, they take the counterfeit one to the legit store and say, I've changed my mind. I don't want this anymore. And they go, oh, no problem. And they get it refunded, right? But then there's one counterfeit in the system. Exactly and then they right. just keep perpetuating that cycle. It's, it's simplicity of it. It's genius. Yeah. I, I, you know, point. It, and it is based on a real life crime. So I right. didn't come up with it. <laughs> you right. know, people always ask, how did you come up with this ingenious? Do you yes. know what I'm saying? I didn't want to ask about it. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the real life crime was so perfect as you just described it. There was really nothing I could do to make it better. You know, it was best yeah. to just kind of leave it as is. But you see, where I, I, again, so I, we both wear your spoilers. Can I just say, first of all, before I go any further on this line of questioning, I knew nothing about this book apart from Natalie loved it. She said to me, you've got to read this book. So I read it. I'm a slow reader. It took me three days. That's really quick for me. Right? <laughs> I devoured it. And um, one of the things I loved about it is as we're getting through the book with this scheme, I'm going, oh, well, surely they're going to run out of people to do this. They're going to run out of shops. They're going to blah, blah, blah. And all these doubts I've got, your book then wonderfully addresses. But there is a racial element to that, isn't there? There is a, a racial stereotyping element to that. And I wondered, if you, it's even fair to ask you. I'll ask you anyway, and then you deal with it how you see fit to deal with it. <laughs> did you set out to go, you know what, I'm going to write a crime caper? Or did you set out to go, actually, I'm going to write a book that explores some of the racial stereotypes around American, Asian American, and Chinese people? The latter. Right. The latter. It's okay. a very astute question, by the way. Thank you. Oh. Um, you know, I, you know I, I'm a lifelong lover of handbags, so I had a deep interest in handbags to begin with. But the reason I really wanted to write this book was because the counterfeit handbag scheme was kind of a window into looking at Asian American stereotypes and looking at the model minority myth. And it was really that detail that to me is the heart of the book. I don't think I would have written this novel if it wasn't about race. There, you know, there, it's very intentionally centered on those issues. Um, and I love that um, counterfeit handbags are kind of a metaphor for um, immigration and for, you know, the way that immigrants put on different faces and are very used to kind of showing a different side of themselves to different communities in their, um, in their adopted homelands, for instance, you know, the way they talk at home is not the way they talk to the world around them. And so, you know, the counterfeit handbag scheme is really, it just on many, many levels kind of reflected the many aspects of being an immigrant. So before you sat down or while you were writing this, did you always know that the crime elements, that was the kind of backbone of the story? Or did you actually start to write a very different story covering some of those themes and issues? And then you kind of went into the crime area then. The reason I had this idea for the book was because I came across this newspaper article mm -hmm. in the Washington Post that described a real life 
counterfeit handbag con artist who had this perfect scheme. And when I read that scheme, like I said, I thought, oh, this belongs in a novel. The really interesting detail about that real life crime for me was that the perpetrator of that crime was an Asian woman, an immigrant who was, and you can't make this up, a kindergarten teacher's aide. And when I read that detail, I thought, this is why she didn't get caught. She's an Asian woman. She's invisible to the world in many ways. She's a kindergarten teacher. You know, on all these levels, she's the least likely criminal one would imagine. Mm -hmm. And then another detail about this real life crime is that once she served her sentence because she got caught, she went to prison. She was immediately deported because she was an immigrant to America. And she's from Thailand, a Thai Chinese woman. And so she immediately got deported. And it was that detail that, that so resonated with me because that's how the model minority myth works. We hold up a group of people as exemplary and say, everybody emulate them. And then when they fall short of your expectations and they're no longer useful, you say, oh, well, we don't really care about the people themselves. We care about what they symbolize to society. And so if they're no longer useful, best to just, you know, kind of sweep them under the rug. Um, and so, you know, all of that was in the real life crime. And, or those were the details of the real life crime that jumped out at me and gave me the idea for this book. So race was always tied mm -hmm. to it. And um, was that something that you personally had become aware of? Was it something you were kind of scrutinizing in your own mind? Did it become more prevalent when you interviewed your aunt for your last book? I was reading about that and some of the yeah. things that your aunt explained to you. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, I mean, yes, I am um, an immigrant to the U.S. I'm born and raised in Singapore. And so a lot of those uh, details are a lot of that experience comes from me. Um, but one really interesting salient fact was that I revised this book through the pandemic. And you, all of you must know in the, in the U.S., uh, we saw so quickly how Chinese people went from model minority to perpetrators of the Chinese, quote unquote, Chinese flu. Mm -hmm. And I lived at the time in San Francisco, an incredibly diverse city. And for the first time, I was afraid to step, the first time in my life in America, I was afraid to step out of my house. You know, first it was, well, if I wear a mask, will people look at me weird because I'm wearing a mask? And then it became, if I don't wear a mask at all times, will people look at me weird because they think that I'm, the, you know, that I'm somehow responsible for this virus. Um, and then there was also a spike in hate crimes in San Francisco, right, you know, right around the same time. Uh, and it was so disorienting because I have always felt 100% safe in that city. And I've always, San Francisco has always felt like home from the moment I arrived. And so that was kind of the backdrop um, that I was kind of digging into this story. And it just, I mean, again, that's the model minority. That's what it means to be um, in an always kind of precarious position where for now, maybe you're good, but at, mm. you know, but your kind mm. of privileged position is always teetering and never stable. And with, with that, came mostly from Trump, right? I mean, he called it Wuhan yes. flu quite quickly, didn't he? Exactly, exactly. And the Chinese flu. And But I mean, I think um, it is a natural instinct, right? When something this catastrophic happens to kind of want to look for a way to make sense of it. And so I, I, I understand the human instinct to sort of want to be able to say like, oh, this came from here and they are, they are at fault. I mean, it's not the first time that's happened and it just happened to be Asian Americans targeted um, this time around, yeah. Yeah, and prior to that, it was Muslims with rucksacks, wasn't it, on public transport? Exactly, exactly. And then prior, you know, the Holocaust, and you know, yeah. we can it's, it repeats itself over and over. I want to read a line, if you don't mind, um, from your book, where because you play with this really well. I think you've had a lot of fun writing this. Am I right? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, maybe the most fun <laughs> I've ever had writing a book. So yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah I could tell. Um, so there's no spoiler here. Winnie laughed. You Asian Americans are so sensitive. Us Chinese, we know the world looks down on us, but we don't care. It takes only a couple of generations for nouveau riche to become old riche. Am I right? Really <laughs> made me laugh. Really, really made me laugh. But tell me, because obviously I'm not indigenous to any of those parts of the world. Well, what are those stereotypes that you're getting at there? And are they especially prevalent in America? Well, I think, you know, to me, one thing that was really fun or, I mean, fun is maybe the wrong word, but one of the things that was really fascinating about writing this book was, or one of my goals was to really look at the way that um, the Asian American community appears very homogenous to the larger society, but underneath, um, you know, somebody like Ava, who was born and raised in a predominantly white suburb, 
um, of Mass in Massachusetts is completely different culturally from somebody like Winnie who came from China for college. And so she grew up um, in a place where everybody looks like her, where uh, it's the largest economic powerhouse in the world. It's a kind of a rising in stature and in influence. Um, and so, you know, Winnie has a confidence and a sense of security that Ava will never have because of where Winnie is from. And so I was really interested in the way that even within the Asian American community, Asians are stereotyping each other, which is often, you know, the way that it works. And so, you know, it's looking at the way that the larger community stereotypes Asian Americans, but also the way that Asians stereotype within the community. Um, and because of my personal background, because I am from Singapore, I felt that I kind of had a foot in each of those identities. In some ways, it's a bit like being a spy. Like I, I present as Asian American, you can hear the way I talk. I've lived in the US for longer than I've lived in Singapore at this point. And so many people just assume I'm Asian American. Um, and so, you know, I understand very much what Ava is going through, but at the same time, because I'm from Singapore, I'm from a place where, which is predominantly Chinese, I grew up um, in a place surrounded by, you know, my whole extended family, where everybody looks like me, where everybody understands where I'm from, where I have deep roots, and so even though Singapore is a tiny, tiny little dot, on the map, and it's nothing like China, I have that sense of security, I have a place I can always go home to. And so I could really tap into that aspect of Winnie as well. And so yes, it was great fun to kind of bring out the differences between them. I also really liked that um, you play so much, I think, with this, the skill of the crime, because, you know, from what we've been talking about so far already, if I, you know, can think of so many other female-led crimes in the last few years, but perpetrated by white women in America that are kind of celebrated and lauded, you know, despite whatever they may have done and, you know, turned into hugely successful TV series and um, just talked about and uh, spoken in, I think, a very different way to, it sounds like that original article you read about um, in the yes. Washington Post. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because that was something that was very much on my mind, this idea of the noble criminal, yeah. which is so prevalent in our culture. I mean, going back to like Robin Hood or um, what's the guy in Les Mis, Jean Valjean, like yeah. the guy who stole bread to feed his family. You know, we have like through history, these kind of noble criminals who are writing injustices or who are making huge sacrifices for their family. Um, and I was thinking about what kind of people are allowed to become noble criminals. Like, why do we call Jean Valjean mm -hmm. a noble criminal? But, you know, our the, the Central Americans who are trying to, who are at our borders, trying to feed their families, we don't call them noble criminals for risking everything to feed their children. You know, and so I think it's, um, I think it's an interesting question. I think uh, it's obvious that people of color are, are rarely given that kind of status. People from minority groups are rarely given that kind of status. Um, and so that was something I was really interested in exploring as well. Um, and many readers have commented on how rare it is to have two characters of color who are kind of gleefully breaking the law, yeah. you know, um, and, and, I, and I think that's an interesting observation, how rare that is in pop culture. I also wonder, it must be fascinating to meet some of these people who've read your book and see the different types of interpretations that you're getting, depending on the communities that these people come from. Has that been particularly stark? And can you notice the differences that people pick up on depending on their race or gender? Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are tons of, um, be it's been particularly interesting because as you mentioned in the introduction, um, this book was a Reese's Book Club pick, mm. which was an incredible, incredible privilege and the biggest honor that an author, one of the biggest honors that an author could receive. But because of that, um, for the first time, my book reached an incredibly wide audience, you know, versus my first two books, the first two books that I wrote that were a little quieter. And I think when you have a quieter book, you kind of reach your target audience a little bit, then you have a more direct line to your target audience because the people that picked up my last book, for instance, which is set in 1950 Southern China and is an incredibly um, tragic and heavy story, the people, those people were seeking that out versus counterfeit. You know, it was so broadly available and so kind of in the media when the book released that I think a lot, a much broader range of readers came to this book. And so, yes, I've heard, you know, I've seen commentary and feedback from straight mystery crime readers who are just 
interested in that particular aspect. I've heard from people who are really into fashion, who are interested in just that particular aspect. And, you know, and, and, and then I hear from readers who are like, yes, I understand that this is a critique of capitalism and um, race in America. And so like, there's kind of a broad, broad range of reactions. And I think at this stage of my career, um, I know to kind of just take it all in and that none of it is in my control. You know, <laughs> like writers, <laughs> like I know what I'm saying. I know, mm. I know who I'm writing to and I know what I'm trying to say. And then beyond that, the book lives, you know, it, it takes on a life of its own and it really, readers' reactions, I try to I try to be quite detached from them, quite honestly, and to, to think about them as kind of outside myself. So Natalie and I both do radio, and we've both been told, if, if when you when you speak on the radio, you have uh, meters in front of you with a needle going. I'm demonstrating on a screen to Kirsten. And um, we've both been told, don't just make the needle wag. If all you're doing is making the needle wag, right, then you're not inciting a reaction from an audience. So I would imagine it's the same for you. It doesn't matter what they're saying to you, so long as they're saying something to you. There must be nothing worse than putting a book out there and no one saying anything to you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I love that metaphor. I will. I'm going to take that and use that. <laughs> I will use that metaphor for, for some other podcast that I do, and I will quote you on that. Um, yes, I think that's. Right. I think, and I also think that the most interesting art is often quite polarizing. Um, and I tell that to my students, you know, I teach, I've taught writing for a long time. And I tell that to my students a lot because it's so easy to kind of get, there's so many reviews online, whether it's social media, whether it's Goodreads, whether it's Amazon, you could just spend your days reading reviews. <laughs> you know, like there's just that much feedback on the internet. Um, and I think it's very easy to kind of get down when, you know, because we all pay attention to bad reviews more than good reviews. That's psychological. It's not, you know, a scientific fact that we're more affected by the negative mm. than the positive. Um, and so I do try to impress upon them, you know, think about your favorite book that you love the most or the piece of music that you love the most. And I guarantee you that at some point it was polarizing, you know, yeah. and that's often the art that lives on is because because it has this strong, you know, it really sparks the strong reaction from people. Yeah. Did you, I know Natalie was desperate to ask you this. I mean, did you want to ask whether she met Reese or would you want, do you want me to do that? <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. Well, yeah, I don't, I, I'm I don't ask know what it. it means. Like if I'm, the thing, so the things I've seen online and you can obviously give us the real life experiences that Reese will kind of do some sort of Instagram post or there'll be like a Twitter thing with her kind of holding the book and kind of looking like, obviously she lives in this amazing Californian home and uh, <laughs> I'm always like looking at details on that and stuff but um, is there like a phone call like how does it translate to you and also not to just talk about Reese because I know you were a Roxanne Gay book pick as well right yes. it's like amazing so. I know <laughs> both were very exciting <laughs> only in the literary world is Roxanne Gay as exciting as Reese Withers but she was to me I Roxanne Gay is a wonderful wonderful writer and just a wonderful advocate for writers she is really the rock star of the literary world she I is. think um, I have not met Reese in person. Um, she does make a video, she does read all the books and she picks them herself, as you could probably tell. She's a, a tastemaker who has very, she's a great reader, very, very strong opinions. Um, and she makes a video about the book, which was, is still thrilling. Sometimes I still watch that just to remind myself <laughs> that this was true. I have not yet met her in person. I'm still holding out hope that we will. I know she runs um, pop-ups and meet and greets throughout the year. And so I, I think there will be opportunities to meet her in person. Um, I have met her team of um, the team that runs Reese's Book Club and they're incredible, incredible women. Um, I visited their offices in Los Angeles. Reese happened to not be there that day because oh. as you can imagine, she's always she's busy she's a little bit busy <laughs> I did see her office I could feel her aura and um, and she has an incredible team who really um they just do an amazing job and just again thrilled to be a part of that I was saying earlier how I came to it blank and I think it's really the best way to come to your book so I want to set you up to read I don't want to give too much away I feel like we haven't really discussed much of the plot but I want to say that when you open this book you meet Ava first Ava and Winnie know each other through college and it's Winnie who proposes that Ava get involved in this scheme to help out with, with a financial matter. And I think more than that, you probably don't need to. Some of the research I did afterwards, I felt gave away too much online. and I don't want to do that. I think you'll have a much better ride of this book if you just strap in and know that much. So where are we going to join the plot when you start reading for us? I'm going to read right from the beginning. So that was perfect. a perfect setup. <laughs> I love the opening. The first thing I noticed was the eyes. They were anime character huge with thick double eyelid folds 
expertly contoured in coppery tones, framed by premium lash extensions, soft and full as a fur pelt. Then there was the hair, sleek yet voluminous nipple-length barrel curls, and the skin poreless and very white, and the clothes sumptuous silk blouse, patent Louboutins, and finally the bag, an enormous Birkin 40 in classic orange. Back then, I wouldn't have known all these details, though like most people, I knew those bags were absurdly expensive and impossible to obtain. All of this is just to say the woman standing in the doorway of my neighborhood coffee shop looked rich. Asian tourist rich, mainland Chinese rich, rich, rich. Of course, I was surprised. Almost 20 years had passed since I'd last seen her and she looked nothing like my freshman year roommate. In fact, she didn't even sound like her. Back at Stanford, she'd had a thick sing-song accent. Each word she spoke curled in around the edges like a lettuce leaf. She struggled with the th sound, so mother came out muzzer, other, other. Now though, it would have taken me a few lines to figure out that she was from China. On the phone when she'd identified herself, she'd pronounced her last name like the tooth. Ava, is that you? It's Winnie Fang. Beautifully done and also reassuring for me. I don't know about you, Nat. That, that's how I read it as well. <laughs> when you're talking about how she couldn't quite get those sounds, that's how yes. I read it to myself. Yes. So I was really pleased that's how you intended it. Um, I want to go back to something that you were discussing with Natalie a few moments ago because you mentioned the bags in that reading. So the handbags here, I really had no idea the price that some people are willing to pay for these bags. Mm. And in a way, the attitude that you have to it, I think Winnie at one point calls it a victimless crime. And it's almost <laughs> yeah. that Robin Hood element you were discussing before. You go, well, if they're going to charge five and a half thousand pounds for a bag, they deserve to get rinsed. And that's why people don't <laughs> mind it. Yeah. I was thinking of the bling ring. Yes. And again, that was a high end, high wealth victim. It's seen as victimless, isn't it? But actually your book explains it's, it's not victimless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the reasons why counterfeiting is not is kind of seen almost as a joke. I mean, it's well known that the um, given the amount of money involved, the consequences, the criminal consequences are quite low. And that's one of the one of the things I learned in my research is that um, a lot of drug cartels and or other organized crime industries have gone into counterfeit handbags because they know that there's it's incredibly lucrative and that the the corresponding uh, punishment is much lower than any of the other crimes that they're often involved in. And so, um, yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about um, this particular crime. Um, but yes, when you remove regulations for manufacturing, there's always um, you know the people who are have the least power are going to be exploited. That's one of the reasons we have regulations is to protect the people who can't protect themselves. Can you both, just to an ignorant man, can you explain <laughs> the bag thing to me? Not the most you've ever spent on a bag. And can you tell the difference between a five grand bag and a 50 pound bag? Um, I have not spent much money on a bag at all. My mum used to work in a Burberry shop at Heathrow Airport once upon a time. And so I have got a Burberry bag that she got for me for my 30th birthday I think it was um but I don't get out that much because I don't know how much it cost um but again I don't think it was like it's not thousands for sure right. um sorry mum if you're listening to <laughs> it was even with your staff just kind of about but I don't think it would have been it would have been um I I I don't know if I'm normal or not like what is normal in this situation I I don't spend that much money on stuff like that because I haven't really had that sort of cash to to justify it but I, I used to work somewhere where a lot of people did and would really save up and kind of spend you know like a month's wages wow. on a bag um I like a bargain too much so I've never really done that but I do kind of covet some of the way that they look and I think you can tell the difference between mm -hmm. a fake it's right. often in the color it's often in the kind of or the way it's like it's a bit like I'm, I'm quite a font snob <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of like yeah, you kind of like drive past it's the like, same oh, that, words. Exactly, but... That cafe looks really nice, but ugh, look at the lettering, the font they've used for like the sign, like ugh. Yeah. So I think it's like you're that. a true bibliophile. <laughs> I love it. I am a handbag lover, and yeah. I am one of those people that, um, and it's quite specific to handbags. You know, when I was much younger, just starting out at work, um, I didn't spend money on anything. You know, I wouldn't buy. You know, I had a very old car. I had a very old, you know, like it was really specific to handbags. So I am, a, I have a deep love of handbags. Um, I think it's hard to explain. I mean, people collect 
people love watches, people love cars, people love sporting equipment. It's mm -hmm. hard to kind of explain what you're drawn to. Um, I've always loved fashion. I, I can tell, I think I can, you know, to some extent, workmanship, details, that kind of thing. Um, but I also think it's just, a, it's a status symbol and also signal that you're part of a club of handbag lovers, you know? And so it's kind of that part that's really appealing. But it is so one of- My ignorance is like, I'm not sure. You know, imagine we were all in the same room mm. and saying, Natalie, you had a kind of a high street bag and Kirsten, your bag was, you know, high end. I'm yeah. not sure that my naked eye would go, oh, wow. Do you know what I mean? I think I, if, imagine <laughs> if it had the designer's name all over it, I would. I'd be able to, oh, look, that's a Chanel or that's a Marc Jacob or whatever. I'd wow. know that. But I wouldn't know. I suppose it's like the wine thing, isn't it? You know, when you go out to a restaurant and you go, wine, well, that's a good example. Yeah. Why is that a hundred pound bottle of wine? And why is this one 20 pounds? And will my palate know the difference between the two? Yeah. I mean, and I think it's funny too, because everybody has their kind of one thing or yeah. most people have something that they're very, um, one thing that they're willing to kind of splurge on. And it's so easy to kind of look at somebody else and be like, that's a waste of money. Yeah, you that's know? true. That's so true. <laughs> and, I yeah. love, and I think that's one of the things the book pokes fun at as well. And um, you might remember that Winnie, says to Ava um my handbag is like your Stanford education and she's yeah. like what <laughs> it's nothing alike but it is true that you know uh in the U.S. from time to time they publish these studies where they track applicants to a school like Harvard right so high school people a high school students who got into Harvard and half of them go to Harvard and the other half says, oh, Harvard's too expensive. I'm going to go to a cheaper school. And then 10 years later, they come back, look at those students and say, how successful are they? And oftentimes they're equally successful. So then the question becomes, is Harvard making you successful or are they just accepting the best students from the beginning and they come out successful, right? Yeah, That's an yeah, old question. Yeah, yeah. And yet everybody would say, oh, but it's worth it to go. Harvard is not a Birkin bag. Harvard is not a Mercedes Benz, right? But in some ways, the value of Harvard is the name. It's the yeah, brand. It is right? the brand. Be, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, like, that's kind of an extreme example of the ways that we sort of, it's so easy to kind of criticize people's spending. It's, yeah, no, I think so too. And also uh, not wishing to overly gender it, but I think sometimes there can be a sniffiness around, oh, like you're spending that much on a handbag, but you yes. wouldn't level it and say, but what you spent like, four grand on a season ticket to see your favorite <laughs> football team for the year that you know there are equivalents that i think we often don't so the thing is maybe, maybe we're just establishing that that i am tight because i do <laughs> <laughs> honestly friends of mine have got season tickets you know to use your example mm. and you get how much yeah i mean some of the prices are extraordinary mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. kind of thing I, i'm trying to think as you both speak i'm thinking you're right kirsten i must have a splurge what's my splurge i suppose trainers sneakers I'm quite. Oh, people get so into sneakers, though. Are you yeah. like a? So I've just switched allegiance here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a load of Adidas, and um, I've just gone to Nike because they're slightly my feet. But this is a bizarre side street to turn down with you, but I will. Right? <laughs> I'm 48 years old, and two years ago, my feet went up a size. How is that even? What's going on? There? <laughs> so now I can. Yeah. So Nike's better for a broader foot. I've got massive feet. And um, and so, yeah, I've started to switch there. But even even with that, I wouldn't go above 150 pounds. Mm -hmm. I've got a limit. And some of those Air Jordans are like 250. I think, well, and again, it's that thing. What am I getting for 250? Maybe you're just so secure in who you are that you don't need any status symbols. <laughs> and you know what? Power true. to you. Power to you. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, like, don't get, don't get me wrong. Like, if I did suddenly come into a large amount of money, um, there are probably things that I would buy and be like oh yeah I'm totally gonna like <laughs> yeah, yeah, flash yeah. three grand on like that mulberry bag or whatever it is yeah I walk past those shop windows and think they look lovely but yeah I'd also probably get conned because I wouldn't know enough maybe <laughs> you'd be the person that bought the one counterfeit at yeah, the I'd be like the unlucky one and <laughs> um, can I ask you about some of the relationships in your book because the relationship between Ava and her husband is a really interesting one. If you could just talk about why you presented it in that way and what you enjoyed writing about that relationship. Oh yeah, I enjoyed that relationship a lot. I mean, I think Ava, um, when we first meet her in the book, at least how she presents herself, she is this character who has done everything right her entire life. She's followed all the rules. She um, you know, got the good grades, went to the right schools, majored in the right subject, got the right job. And her husband is another kind of checklist is how mm -hmm. I saw it. And so I was thinking of what is the kind of fantasy man for a woman like her? <laughs> and so he's 
a Harvard educated liver transplant surgeon, which um, if anybody is in the medical field, my partner happens to be um, a, a pediatric oncologist. And so I, I, within the medical field, there are all of these stereotypes and liver transplant surgeons have a particular reputation oh, really? in the medical field. <laughs> I think surgeons in general, just because it's such a high powered pressure driven job, there is I don't want to offend anybody, but this is so just I, the I, stereotype. I've already got that from like my years of watching ER and stuff oh, like that. Oh, okay, so. yes. Yeah. So the surgeons are often like they, they you know, a stereotype is that they have this God complex because they're literally in there like moving your, your organs around. Um, and then within that liver transplant, even within the surgery uh, community, liver transplant is particularly uh, a stressful and high powered because you never know when you're going to get an organ and a transplant needs to happen. So you're kind of constantly, you know, you really have to be ready to go. Um, and so I was also playing with medical stereotypes in that particular choice. Um, but that that was really the goal was to kind of um, have Ava make all what she felt were all the right decisions. And so when her life, when she doesn't feel as happy or as satisfied or as content as she expected, it's all the more mystifying, you know, because she can't pinpoint what it is that has gone wrong. Um, and, and I think Ollie is kind of um, part of that. And I do also think that um, we see Ollie through Ava's confession to the detective. And so we're also only seeing a kind of narrow slice of him because we understand that a confession, the nature of confession is that Ava is trying to present herself in the, the most sympathetic light possible. So Yeah, I also just um, love that you, you play with the, that idea that you know, it often happens for women that you do everything right. You, you know, you kind of, you work hard, you study hard, you, you know, find a partner, you kind of create a family. Um, and then the kind of ultimate goal at the top of that is you're just bored out of your brain. <laughs> you're literally not using any of those skills and talents that you've kind of evolved over years for any particular use. Like it's, I kind of love that as a thing that happens so often and has happened so often to women um, societally. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> well, just while you're on those relationships, so you've spoken about Ollie. Can we speak about the role of their son? Henry, yeah. Very small. And um, I don't want to put words into a reader's imagination, but um, developmentally, perhaps he's not quite where he should be for his age. Um, and Dave is quite keen for him to be further ahead of where he should be for his age. And all the while reading it, I thought, this grabbing of the ear, it's going to lead to something, it's going to lead to something. <laughs> and then I wondered, so what were you trying to tell us with with Henri's inclusion? Was that another thing that she wanted? She wanted to have a child, but not necessarily to nurture it. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that is that is an interesting thought, yes. Um, I was So, yes, I was thinking about that, about how someone like Ava probably would not realize there was an alternative option, right? You get married, you have a kid, you make the perfect family. So that's part of it. Um, I was thinking about what is the one thing in Ava's life that she won't be able to control, mm -hmm. you know, because she's somebody who's so incredibly buttoned up, you know, she can, she can control her behavior. She can even control her emotions because she's repressed them for so long. You know, she's just kind of tamped them down. She never shows when she's upset. And I thought, a baby is going to be the thing she can't control, right? Because so I'm not, I myself am not a parent, but I've talked to many, many parents and many, luckily many of my first readers in my uh, first readers, of my work, they're all parents. And the one thing that they've told me is that even when your baby is a few months old, like six months old, they are, you can tell that they are a fully formed human being with a will of their own and a personality of their own. And already you can't tell them what to do because they're, you know, they're just kind As of- on cue, my 10 year old son just ran behind. <laughs> Wonderful. They're wholly themselves. And so that's what I thought, you know, is going to get Ava out of this kind of controlled sphere that she's built is that she's going to have the son and he's going to do whatever he wants. And he doesn't care that he's embarrassing her or that he's not advanced or not, you know, not speaking very well. At, you know, he's me too. But um, but I thought that that would be the thing that kind of made her particularly vulnerable to Winnie is that she's at a place where that's the thing that makes her think, oh, wait a minute. Everything I thought was true is maybe not because here I am and I'm drowning in motherhood and nobody mm. told me this would happen. I think it also highlights how far she's willing to go for a grift, right? 
because mm-hmm. actually she's barely there. <laughs> she's barely yes. looking after this child she's got, you know? Yes, that's right. And I think that is also, I mean, what you observed in the beginning about how she thought she should have a kid and mm. and then was not at all prepared for what that meant. Mm. You know, I think you I think if you're kind of if you're kind of going through the motions because you think you have to and not really thinking critically about what it is you want, that often is the the reason why she's in she doesn't really particularly want to be a lawyer either. But you know, here she is having spent all this time trying to be a lawyer, you know, in the similar way that she's finds herself being a mother mm. and not understanding what that means. Can I also ask you about external validation? which we've we've talked about briefly, you know, saying that obviously Roxanne Gay loved this book and Reese Witherspoon. Um, I noted that Steven Soderbergh popped it on a list of books that he loved as well. Like, I mean, it's great, creative, talented people. Um, How good have you always been at believing your own writing talents? Clearly you teach as well. So this is your third book. You, You must know you're good. But what does that external validation bring that what maybe wasn't already there previously yeah that's a really interesting question I mean I think because uh, I, I think I'm in an interesting position as a writer because it's quite rare that your third book becomes the breakout book mm-hmm. you know we're quite used to kind of huge debuts yeah. and that kind of comes with a whole different set of expectations because you have to do it again Um, And I know a lot of people who are so fortunate to be in that position who have a lot of trouble with their next book just because they had this huge um, kind of explosion into the literary scene. I think for me, um, I I feel like I had built a career before I wrote Counterfeit and I was honestly quite content with that career. I, uh, you know, my first two books did fine. (laughs) They were, um, you know, they, they got published, which was, I was ecstatic about. They found readers, which was another um, wonderful thing. You got um, paid I think to write them, which I is, got paid to yeah. write. Yes, which was a privilege. And I think I remember distinctly when I went on tour for my second book, "Bury What We Cannot Take," which is the least read of those three books. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, if this is my life, every four or five years, I write a book and I put it out, and somebody pays me to do it, and somebody reads it. What a life that is! What a beautiful life that is! What a privilege! Um, and so I kind of try to remember that now, you know, with all the stuff that has happened um, and it has been incredible and has been exciting. Um, I try to remember that that's a small blip in the writing life. You know, I spent four years or five years writing that book and you spend six months or a year promoting it if you're lucky. And then you go back and you write another book, which is what I'm doing right now. And this part of it is exactly the same as it's always been. So the most, you know, Every six months, you know, the six month to the 12 month period is really exciting. And then the next five years are hopefully quiet. And um, and so that's <laughs> kind of how I how I approach it. And then, you know, I, the external validation has been amazing. But as I just said earlier, um, as humans, we pay attention to the negative. You know, the it's I don't know what it is. It's maybe like one great review, uh, you know, five great reviews to one negative review, or I don't know what the exact scientific ratio is. But there's always neg. You know, it's never all good, and um, and so that part doesn't even feel that different either. To be honest, it's you know, it's kind of wild to hear myself say that because um, objectively it is different, but it doesn't feel that different. There's a very funny quote I've picked out, which kind of covers what you've just been discussing. I can't importantly say what the that is in this second sentence, okay? So otherwise it would spoil it. But <laughs> Winnie screams and then covers her mouth, shaken by the sound her own body produced. How did Ava come up with that? Her friend could have been a best-selling novelist, effortlessly <laughs> spinning tall tales from Golden Thread. What will she invent next? A gangster with a raised scar, spanning temple to jaw? <laughs> a sex worker who dreams of going back to school? Winnie can't wait to find out. And that really made me laugh because I thought, no, Kirsten can't wait to find out. That's what I thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Ava is, you know, part of what she's doing in this story is in this book is being a storyteller. Mm. Um, and I was also thinking about, there's a there's a very common pipeline of dissatisfied lawyer to novelist. I don't know if you're aware of that stereotype. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. We've interviewed <laughs> a few. Yeah, there you go. There's a, a, they often become really excellent crime writers because yeah, they have yeah. 
Um, and so I was thinking about that too, you know, Ava clearly doesn't want to be a lawyer. And I was like, you know, she has this kind of innate, a lot of lawyers are very verbal, very good storytellers, very good writers. And so that was a kind of inside joke to myself. I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked up on it. <laughs> I think it's something to do with um, attention to detail, isn't it? Yeah. If you've been a lawyer and you've had to be across a lot of detail, then you've had to lay your case out. That's mm -hmm. like laying your story out. And you're all the while yeah. through this, you're drip feeding us. Yes, absolutely. And there, I think they also have to think a lot about how their words are perceived. And so they become incredibly precise. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I also love how, from what you were saying there, that the joy is in the writing always. And I, I wonder how, how did it, can, can you just sort of talk about how it felt to have, obviously this is like me manifesting and, and wish fulfillment on my own behalf. How did it feel to have that first book published and, you know, the debut that was fine but not this huge splash was that enough did it kind of feel enough at the time it felt more than enough because I didn't think it would be published so I you know the, my first novel um it took eight months in total to sell which is in the grand scheme of things not very long but when you're going through it, it feels like infinity and we had gotten enough rejections that my agent and I had to have a chat about what would happen if the book didn't sell so it was very very much on my mind um and so I, I, you know, the euphoria of hearing that one editor of the 25 that we had sent it to had decided to buy it eight months after we started this process. Um, I, I don't know that I will, I mean, I can still feel it. I mean, it's so visceral, <laughs> you know, it was 2012. I was at a writer's conference. My agent called me, even though I told her, email me, I don't have, <laughs> I'm not available on the phone, but she called and um, it, I, you know, what that, Period. So it, it was enough just because um, it, there were, I had never, I, I came so close to it not happening that, mm -hmm. that the fact that it actually happened was enough. And my team, my, I had a wonderful editor uh, who is no longer with, I, I was at Little A, which is the literary imprint of Amazon Publishing. I had a wonderful publicist. The team worked really, really hard and we did, and they did get incredible publicity in various aspects. Um, and so, no, it felt, it felt amazing. And it felt, um, I, I was just happy, happy to be read at all. And that people seemed to care even a little bit, you know? I love it. I mean, and, you know, I now have your other two books on my to be read pile as well, because I think that's what's, is what's nice if, you know, if it is like the third or whatever book that captures the attention means that you've already got a back catalogue you can, you can go to. So um, that feels like a joy as well. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Thank you for picking those up. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Justin, I want to ask you, you mentioned that you are writing again. When you've had something that's made so much of a splash, has it changed how you approach the fourth book? Or is it just, yeah. are you doing your routine thing that you've done for the last three? Yeah. The biggest change is that my editor bought this fourth book on a summary. So that wow. has never happened to me before. I have a dream. always, it, it was a dream. Um, and when I we're talking always, summary, what are we saying? One paragraph, two paragraphs? It was one page. One, one page, page of A4, done. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and um, with every one of my other books, I have written it, sent it out to my first readers, written about, you know, revised, written, revised about 10 drafts before it's gone out on submission. 10 to 15 drafts even before it's gone out in submission to editors at publishing houses. And so I've had plenty of time to really get a book right before we go on submission. Um, and so this is the first time that it, it's an incredible privilege that comes with having a successful book, but it's also the first time I've had to know a story before I've started writing it. Uh, I think like many novelists, I often don't work with an outline because I, I don't have the knowledge to outline a story before I start. I often start, I have a premise. I sometimes, I often have the main characters in mind and an idea, and I just start writing. And it isn't until the kind of second or third draft that I feel like I have enough of a handle on the story to actually outline. Um, and I had to do the reverse with this particular book. I had to um, tell the story to my editor to see if she liked the story. Um, and so that was the one thing that I was actually quite worried about was that so much of writing for me, the, the, the interest that I have in writing is the discovery process and trying to figure out where is the story going to go? What are these characters going to do? What is actually at the heart of their, you know, what is motivating them to do these things? And I wondered if I would be completely bored with the project because I knew, you know, how it was going to end. And I kind of had to outline the kind of major beats 
in the story even, right? Because you can't, even one page, you have to have an arc. You can't mm. just throw some, here's the concept. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. You know, nobody's going to buy that. And so that's been interesting. I think a lot of that, and I just finished a first draft and I'm working on a second draft right now. And I think a lot of that first draft was trying to figure out how I would make this project interesting to me. You know, how, you know, what is going to be the discovery now that I know the beginning and the end and I have a vague, I, you know, I have a sense of the arc. I mean, so that's been an interesting project too. You know, I often, I often think of novel writing as a problem that I'm setting for myself to solve. It's almost like a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm creating a crossword puzzle that I have to then go ahead and solve. And I, and I'm thinking about how do I create a problem that is big enough and complex enough and interesting enough that it's going to sustain my attention for five years. Um, and so, you know, I'm doing the same thing now, but the parameters of that problem are a little bit different because I have different pieces in place. I love that. That's how you approach it though, because I think so often there is no kind of one or what I've learned so far in having written my first book which didn't sell uh, and my second which hopefully one day might sell uh, if I finish it is that you can get caught up in there is the correct way to write and there there is never a correct way you just have to figure out what works for you and of course you have to research and study and you know do all the tools that you would do in any other kind of work environment but there isn't one definitive way that it should happen but we kind of often get caught up in that I find I often get caught up in that oh maybe like I'm not you know it hasn't worked because I wasn't doing this or I should have you know outlined that and I'm kind of similar the joy for me of writing my first book was not knowing what's going to happen and actually and then when stuff did happen when you're writing it's the best feeling yeah so fun the element of surprise it's really uh it's really a delight I agree totally um, so I wonder what do you, if there's, I mean, I know this is a difficult thing to see, you you teach as well. Is there kind of one crucial thing that you make sure you always impart to your students? Oh, gosh. I mean, one thing that I think is important, and it relates very much to what you said about having there, there being no right way to do something, is to t- kind of really pay attention to what works for you and then really lean into that. You know, I have students who say like, oh, I can't. I can't write every day or every other day. Like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this book if I can't write steadily. And it's like, you, you don't have to, you know, there's this like kind of mythology around writing that you have to sit down and write an hour, you know, at least you write an hour a day if you keep touching the manuscript. And I have friends who take months and months off and then write for three weeks nonstop. Or, you know, I, you know, I happen to be a very kind of slow and steady writer, Um, But it took me a while to find that that worked for me as well. And so I often tell them it's not about doing it a particularly right way, but it's about figuring out what works for you and then hopefully creating a life that supports that, you know, every most writers vast majority of writers are going to have a day job how do you find a day job that supports the way that you know that can help you work the way that you want to work and that best serves um your particular instincts and um innate kind of uh your innate process um and so i think that's more important is leaning into the things that work for you as opposed to trying to change them into something that might feel completely inorganic we had dennis lahane a couple of weeks ago uh, it was fascinating. You know, he did six or seven novels, then The Wire came along, and then more novels, and now he's show running for Apple and probably doing more screenplay work than he is authorial work at the moment. Where do you stand with Counterfeit? Are you uh, Would you like to be offered the chance to do a screenplay? Are you already doing the screenplay for it? Not at all. <laughs> I, it came up in the beginning when we were negotiating contracts if I wanted to be involved in the adaptation, and I felt quite strongly that that was not something I wanted to do. Um, it's firstly, it's not my genre. I would have to learn a new genre. Um, and secondly, I feel like I put my entire soul into that book, you know, to get it to where, you know, from conception, inception to publication, I just kind of probably worked as hard as I've ever worked on a book. And part of that is because I had a wonderful editor who we have just an amazing relationship and she pushed me um, harder than I've ever been pushed. And I think that to do the adaptation would be to write the book over, (laughs) except now I have to justify it to 20 studio executives. Mm -hmm. And one of the real pleasures of writing for me is that I'm writing to myself. 
for most of the time, it's me, you know, reading my own work and trying to think about what I'm trying to do. And I don't have to justify it to anybody else until I'm ready. And that is not the way that TV writing works. You know, you're kind of, it's collaborative and it's, um, you know, there's so many different interests involved. And so that was something that I think um, never really appealed to me. I have, you know, I think like maybe if I adapted somebody else's book, it would be <laughs> a kind of more, you know, if I could be more detached from the pro project. I am interested in that kind of, in the work as kind of an intellectual exercise, but not for my own adaptation. I've got to say, it sounds me. a deeply frustrating process, doesn't it? From all the writers we have on that. Was it Mark Billingham who said he, uh, he was working on his his latest novel only came about because TV were too slow. So it was originally a TV idea. TV said, can you create a detective vehicle for this star? And he said, on draft 17, they said, you know the thing we asked you to take out on draft 13? Can you put it back in? See, see exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, yeah. writers do that too, but often we come to that on our own, you know, with it's not a you know, this isn't going to resonate with audience. Like this is, you know, we have to move this for financial reasons. You don't have to think about the business side, at least for literary writers. You don't have to think about the business side um, for most of the time that you're writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like the, I'd love to try it one day, Um, but I think you're right. I think it probably depends what the project is and whether you'd want to adapt your own work. You'd have to have a very, very specific set of skills, I think, to be able to kind of shed um, a lot of what you learnt in the book world and transfer that to the screen. Um, we're going to run out of time shortly and we do want to get your recommendations. But just oh, before yes. we do, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying there about the joyous um, collaborative bond you have with your editor now. Yes. Um, because I know how invaluable a good editor is. And is it like finding, you know, your the McCartney to your Lennon or whatever it is? Does it kind of feel <laughs> like that sort of brilliant moment you're like yes this person gets me and you kind of push each other and that's why you become better yeah that's actually probably a good analogy because I think <laughs> McCartney dear Linda, I mean I think they had an often contentious relationship and it's not that my relationship my my editor is wonderful we have a very very cordial and warm relationship but I think you re we really she really is pushing me and and I remember um we uh we edited counterfeit a lot like I think we did four rounds of edits which is not normal and the book was a little bit late because we were still working on things and I remember um when we were on that fourth round we were talking on a Sunday because that's how late we were like we had to talk on a weekend and I said to my editor um I think this is the best I can do I I, I worked you know it's been four years 17 drafts like I, I know what you're talking about but I think this is the best I can do and she said you have to try one more time because it's not good enough. She okay. said that. She was like, try one more time. It's not there yet. And it was almost despairing, except mm -hmm. that I knew that she was kind of there to carry me over the line a little bit. You know, it, I wasn't alone. And was she able to tell you why it wasn't there? Because I think I, at that point for me, I'd be like, what, what, what do you want that you're not getting? But I knew it wasn't there too. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? I think right, we both okay. knew it wasn't there. I just didn't know how to fix it. And she yeah, didn't know how to fix it either. It's deeply frustrating though, isn't it? It's deeply frustrating. And I was also thinking like in my moment of frustration, who's going to notice? Like, this is like, it was one chapter, chapter 15, near the end of the book. I was like, in my mind, my subconscious was like, if a reader's made it that far, they're going to get to the end. You know, I have worked so hard on this. No book is perfect. Like I had, a, and she, she was relentless. She said, no, you know, try one more time. And I don't know what would have happened if I had come back and said, I tried one more time and I didn't fix it. But that time was the one that unlocked the thing that needed that we both think needed to happen wow. you know and and i always think how lucky i am to have her there to say it's okay that we're late like it's more important to get it right um and i don't think every i don't think every writer wants that i think many writers want to kind of be given more freedom and and kind of they want their vision to be um the vision that carries the book and also i, th I think a lot of writers argue that a, a little messiness in the book sometimes gives it life you know like it doesn't have you don't need perfection or whatever perfection mm. means um but for me this relationship with my editor jessica williams i mean i um think of that moment and think how lucky how lucky to you know how lucky to have found my mccartney or my lennon as you say yeah absolutely and i think that's yeah i'm with you i'd want that as well in an editor for sure because that's got to be part of the 
the true happiness I think in writing will be that you feel you're always improving and always doing your best work and if you've got somebody who gets you and can kind of push you to do that yeah what a gift yeah yeah I'm sure it's painful (laughs) (laughs) but even so like oh I love that right um last challenge for you Mm -hmm. is to recommend some books to us that are equally as good as your book (laughs) right honestly I've got to say I, I love this book I loved it a lot I tore through it and I don't read quickly. And I'd also, if you're a man listening to this and, and you've heard handbags mentioned, do not be put off. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I think it's really I've important. Had... Don't, you know, don't think, oh, well, that's not for me. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of stories where, and I hate the label women's fiction because it, mm. it, it implies that men shouldn't be reading it. And it's like, this is, I am a man. I love this book. Yeah, I've had some, I've heard from some male readers who are like, I push through the cover, <laughs> you know, they're like, despite the cover, despite the synopsis, despite the press, I read it. <laughs> so thank you for being one of those men. I appreciate it. Um, I will recommend um, two books, actually. So one I'm kind of halfway through right now, but I'm so taken by it that I'm going to recommend it anyway, even though I haven't gotten to the end. It's called The Laughter. It's by Sonora Ja, J-A-J, came out, I think, in March or late February. Um, it's a kind of campus tale. It's very funny, very satirical. It's told from the point of view of this aging, middle-aged white male professor at a very liberal college in Seattle and the kind of trials and tribulations that he's going through. And he becomes quite infatuated with his young Pakistani colleague. And so there's a lot of interest that comes from that as well so, so that's, that's the laughter it's sonora laughter. s-o-n-o-r-a and the surname is j-h-a if you're looking that one up for yourself i want right. to read that I, we've had yes. it quite a few times now actually by the way we get recommendations and the hope with this is that we're kind of like paying forward the joy of reading right and that lots of people will pick up on maybe books they may not have necessarily thought of to to read but i love it when we had curtis sittenfeld came on a while back and recommended a book called yeah. Everything's Fine by Cecilia Rabess. Yes. And we're speaking to her as oh, well after. Wonderful. Wonderful. I haven't read it either, but she um I, I we have mutual friends. And so that book is definitely on my radar. Um and then the second book that I'd recommend is coming out next week in the US. And so probably around the same time in the UK. Um it's called Madalena and the Dark by Julia Fine. It's a kind of magical gothic fairy tale book set in 18th century Venice at an elite music school for orphan girls. And it is just... (laughs) (laughs) I love that premise. Yes, and it's a premise I've never heard. It has a really captivating voice and I'm always interested in a voice that sounds distinct. And this this book is just so much style, so much mood. Um, it's um, It's really intriguing and also fun. So again, that's Madalena with two Ds, M-A-D-D-A-L-E-N-A, and the dark, and the author is Julia Fine, as you would expect, F-I-N-E. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for those recommendations, and yeah. thanks for giving us an hour of your time. I've really enjoyed spending an hour with you, Kirsten, and I can say I want to convey to you listening the sheer joy on her face that you've had so much fun with this project. That, that's what <laughs> is really, and it comes across, it, it bounces off the page at you because I think you've had so much joy going into the keyboard at your end and we've- And so much hard work as well. Yes, yeah, no, I mean, I think both of those things often make a book. It's hard to do, it's hard to spend five years on something with when it's completely joyless. So it, you're absolutely right, Phil. Thank you so much again for having me and your questions were so thoughtful and I so appreciate that you read my book with such care. I am so thrilled that you really enjoyed reading Kirsten's book as well. And genuinely, I'm going to read her other two books too. I kind of, I loved her. I love so much about that conversation, but I really loved how getting published and the writing was enough and yeah. has always been enough. I was and struck by that too. So genuine and, um, oh yeah, so lovely. So lovely to hear because I, I don't think we often hear that. I kind of hate that. I hate how there's always that one notion that success should be one thing and you should always strive to achieve more, want more, get more. Mm, and mm. actually what we're, we're not like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That does, that's can never lead to satisfaction. Surely. No, no. Cause then when you achieve what you think will bring satisfaction, you then shift the satisfaction goal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so exactly. There, There'll there, always the be next, a next thing. Yeah, There'll always be something always else. You'll never be enough. Yeah. Yeah. I liked her sense of mischief. I think she's, she'd be a lot of fun on a night out. Do you know what I mean? I think she's kind of, <laughs> the way she's constructed this novel, she really plays with the reader and with your intellect. And I think, yes. you know, a really 
healthy sense of fun and and um mischief I, I got from that and yeah I thoroughly enjoyed talking to her and thoroughly enjoyed reading the book because there's always a dilemma do you have this i've never asked mm. you this but i sometimes have this where when you've loved the book and then the writer comes on and then you think oh i hope now what imagine if i don't actually like the writer how's that gonna go there because it does happen sometimes doesn't it i'm sure i won't ask you who you must have interviewed people that you've admired and then they turn out to be dicks it doesn't happen very often but it's happened to me once or twice yeah um I don't think it's happened on this podcast. I no, no, I'm talking more in the day job. Yeah, yeah, no, same. Like, there's definitely people. Um, but I wonder if it's like the often those situations in our sometimes day jobs where we're interviewing people from film or TV and music, they're such a heightened situation and it's it's almost kind of combative some ways. Maybe, yeah, it's not as relaxed as this. No, and I think hopefully you'd, you'd like to think that most people, if you are having a genuine hopefully relaxed conversation with them will respond in kind um but not it doesn't doesn't have to be a given or i wonder if it's just like the stories we're choosing um kind of give an indication I, I, there must be like there must be authors out there whose books are brilliant and then the writers are twats i can't say twats <laughs> yes your podcast so <laughs> you want i love that word i know i shouldn't yeah. I'm conscious that we've got some admin to do, but I just really want to be in that water balloon fight that's happening in your back garden right now. <laughs> it sounds so much fun. Uh, we need to thank some people who've bought us a coffee. So let's do that. Um, this is via Kofi. You can do this if you enjoy what we do. You'd like to buy us a little euphemistic coffee. It's ko-fi.com slash podcast. So first of all, we need to thank Carol, who bought us a coffee a few days ago and said, thank you, guys. This podcast is definitely my favorite, which is lovely. Thanks, Carol. Uh, and then uh, Jane Lawson, who said, used to lo love your book reviews on Five Live, Phil, and yours and Natalie's on Times Radio. Now loving the podcast. It inspires me to try new stars. I listened to the Joe and Harris one today. Phil, totally agree with your dad. You definitely bring out the best in your guests by listening and asking pertinent questions. Oh, I, mean, I do remember now dad saying, oh, that's right. That was, yeah. Yeah. Dad has liked one of my interviews because he said, you shut up and let the guest do the talk. That was what that was. Um, I really like that too. Um, and again, I should apologise for if you do hear any noises. My kids are having a water balloon fight in the garden. So, hey-ho. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be out there in a minute with them. But you're going to get drenched <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, I am. Uh, uh, Ailey says, love your podcast, guys. Enjoy a coffee with best wishes from the Outer Hebrides. We used to do that in the early season. And we used to chart where our listeners were. I remember doing that. I love doing that. We should do some more of that, maybe. I think that's everyone. I think we thanked Ray Blake and Patricia before. But if we didn't, they've just had a second mention. And if this has inspired you to want to buy a metaphorical coffee, just to say thanks and support with the idea is that kind of any anything we get from this, we're channeling back into the podcast to, um, yeah, just improve things and keep it going for as long as we can because we really love doing it and really love sharing these stories with you. Right. You're going to get drenched. I hope not, <laughs> but, but quite possibly. Um <laughs> I might just stay inside for as long as possible. Although, you know, it's a nice day. What's what's to worry about, right? This is this is your summer. This is the one week of the year that's your summer. So embrace yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I'll report back. Um, yeah, but do. again, thank you for listening, and hope you have found a book to love. And more next time. Watch out! There's one coming there. Yeah.